Hello, I'm Steve Davis. In 2023, we invited expert vocational voices from the vet sector to share their views, their stories, experience and insights. And we're grateful they found time in their busy schedules to join us. Our end-of-year episodes have proven to be very popular, so we're back to reflect on the discussions held throughout 2023. If you heard the episodes first time round, this might be a good refresher over summer. But if you missed them, consider this some catch-up listening to get you ready for another year of vet challenges and opportunities. We've had five full episodes this year, and we're about to revisit a selection of short, sharp insights from each of the guest speakers, remembering that if you want to hear more, all the episodes are still available in your favourite podcast app. Enjoy. I think it's one of the great myths of TAFE, Steve, is that TAFE is not agile, but in a regional setting, as Tabitha was talking about, TAFE lecturers and TAFE staff in general have to problem solve on a, on a daily basis. So if they've turned up to do some delivery in a particular location and it's not working out the way they planned, they have to come up with another plan very often on the day and they're able to do that. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National... That was Joanne Payne, Managing Director, Central Regional TAFE in WA, from Episode 1 of Vocational Voices in 2023, in which we discussed the ongoing policy priority of making sure the vet sector serves regional, rural and remote Australia. The episode discussed the challenges that RTOs face when delivering training in regional Australia, what are the barriers and how are they being addressed? We also considered whether local training providers should be given more flexibility to tailor their programs to meet the specific needs of the communities they serve. In the episode, I also spoke with Tabitha Griffin, Senior Research Officer, NCVER, and Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER, about these challenges and the need for diverse and flexible training approaches to better meet the needs of people in regional areas, drawing from the report Vet Delivery in Regional, Rural and Remote Australia, Barriers and Facilitators, which was published by NCVR on the 24th of April 2023. I think it's, it's true to say that regional tastes do usually occupy a pivotal role in, in delivering skills and, and uh, training and opportunities to access education and training generally in regional and remote areas. And that's because of our presence um, there are private providers operating in, in most regions. Um, there are certainly private providers operating in the regions in, in which our college operates and they fulfil a particular role in the training market. But I think that um, TAFE is definitely looked to as you know the major provider of probably post-secondary education and training opportunities across regional WA. Um, and you know TAFE colleges are equipped to deliver a broad range of qualifications so you know we're delivering qualifications right from introductory level training so entry level training you know certificate one level through to advanced diploma and you know all qualification levels in between Um, and we've got a wide range of industry training packages and and courses and and the micro credentials that Simon was referring to the skill sets so we've got a a broad range of delivery on offer that accommodates learners from 
you know, entry level through to advanced diploma level. Um, so we are looked to as that major provider of opportunity in, in regional locations. And again, I suppose characteristic of that is the more regional we become and the more remote we become or the more rec- remote we are, the more we're looked to uh, to fill that space. So, you know, colleges generally have close links to the communities and the businesses that we service. And we've got close working relationships with schools and community-based organisations. So that places us well. It, it equips us well to be able to respond to that need. Glimmers of hope. Yes, I think there are some. Uh, look, we spoke to RTOs that were providing uh, training right across Australia in a lot of different locations. And, um, yeah, the, it's hard work. It's really hard work. Um, they come up across all sorts of issues. And we categorise these barriers into sort of three main um, categories. We talked about uh, market and or RTO-based Um, challenges. So these are the types of things we've talked about already, thin markets and inability to find trainers and those types of things. Location-based challenges, the weather, the long distances, whether there's infrastructure in place, those types of things. Um, And then there are student-based challenges too, the types of cohorts that, um, that are making up the the learners in those locations might have language um, literacy and numeracy issues digital literacy um, a need for culturally aware training those types of things and of course these challenges are different everywhere because the you know I guess uh, delivering training in a regional centre like Geraldton or Bendigo is very different to delivering training in a small outback town for example And the RTOs that we spoke to and the trainers that we spoke to, um, they listed all sorts of things that they do to overcome these barriers. These barriers usually can't be fixed. You know, they're, you know, you can't change the weather, you can't change the distance. Um, So they're doing all sorts of things. But um, it was really what they didn't say that I thought was really um, interesting in this project, the less tangible things. And so sitting above all these practical things that they did um, were a couple of characteristics of these RTOs and and the trainers that we spoke to. The first one being a real desire and determination to ensure success for their students and to ensure that the industries and the local employers that they were serving got what they needed out of the training. Um, They showed they were willing to go above and beyond to make sure that people were getting the skills they needed. Um, and secondly, they had a great mindset and a really flexible approach. Things were going wrong all the time. And so they needed to be good problem solvers. And so I think the, the glimmer of hope was really the passion and the tenacity of the, um, the training providers that we spoke to in getting it done. There's general recognition that literacy and numeracy skills are critical to student success in, in vet. Um, and they're they're critical to the successful transition for students from training through to employment. Um, And while I wouldn't characterise that as particularly a regional issue, I think there's recognition that, you know, the importance of literacy and numeracy skills and capability is an issue across training and across the workforce generally. But, you know, in a regional setting, there tends to be Uh, fewer other resources for students to draw on so going back to the previous point it you know it is very much about coming up with a solution on the spot for people on the day very often 
And I think, you know, their TAFE colleges, we've, we've got a, a role to play there. We've got programs that are designed to boost the literacy and numeracy skills of people so they can engage in training in the first place. Um, we've got programs for, you know, certificates in general education for people for whom English might be a second language. And then we've got other programs that support students while they're in training. So being able to provide those, you know, some of those service, some of those supports and those services to students to boost their literacy and numeracy skills is a really important part of what we do. And I've definitely seen lecturers be very creative and very inventive about the way they weave literacy and numeracy support into the vocational aspects of their training. I think as well, you know, the, the other part of, of that question around the requirements and the structure of that, um, just, you know, TAFE is, is quite agile and we're able to tailor and contextualise that delivery, you know, in a, in a quite flexible kind of way. And I've seen many, you know, TAFE staff working and being very adept at creating that flexibility. I'm not sure whether it will get me into trouble or not, but yes, I think um, one of the strengths, you know, and this is reflected in the report, one of the strengths of regional TAFE colleges is their connectedness with the communities and the businesses that they serve. And that's where we're able to get that close, you know, local information about what's needed in the, in the community or by businesses or by local employers. And that's, you know, that forms the core of our understanding about what it is that we need to deliver, how and, and where. Of course, we are always, you know, cognizant of and working in line with state government priorities for training because that's, you know, that's the, the lever that government is using to move training in the direction that, that's required across the state for the workforce. The, the ability to be able to customise or to be able to understand firstly and then to customise training at a local level is a really important part of what we do. Joe very, um, very importantly brought up the importance of um, building relationships and partnerships in communities and this, was, this came through really strongly in the research um, and you gain a whole heap of things from doing that. So, you know, you ensure that communities and local industries are getting what they need from the training. Um, it might get, get you access to infrastructure and resources, particularly if you're a small training provider. You might not be a TAFE and you might need somewhere to go and do training. You might need access to machinery or something. Building those types of relationships with employers um, and, and the such can help in that way. Um, and sometimes it's really important to get that community support, community buy-in for the training. And this was particularly true for um, small Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities where it was really important that the whole community um, understood the benefits that could be gained through um, people undergoing training. So um, building those relationships is really important. Um, but what we found is it's it's resource intensive and an organisation like TAFE, they have dedicated resources to be able to do this stuff. Not all RTOs are in that same position. Uh, I spoke to some very small RTOs and they're trying to balance doing the training with building these relationships and forming these partnerships, which they know is really important, uh, but they don't always have the time. Um, and 
So we suggested in the report, and this is based on, on what people said to us, that maybe there needs to be some facilitation of these um, relationship building and partnership building opportunities, and maybe government has a role to play there. Um, another thing that could um, be beneficial is some kind of um, pooling um, of training needs to try and counteract some of those thin market issues. Um, so if somebody was able to facilitate a scenario where, you know, you're pooling together the needs maybe across different employers um, and enabling training to happen there, um, it can overcome some of those financial viability issues that do come up. I would see a professional university offering uh, qualifications from certificates, maybe lower level certificates, but certainly certificates three and four, up to diplomas, uh, degrees, and possibly uh, coursework masters. But, and this would be in, in areas that are clearly linked with the labour market. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre. That was Tom Carmel, adjunct professor at the Future of Employment and Skills at the University of Adelaide and director of the Mackenzie Research Institute at Holmes Glen from episode two of Vocational Voices in 2023, in which we discussed potential reforms to universities, their missions and structures while considering the role of VET. One perspective suggests establishing two types of universities, one focused on practical, hands-on learning for professional skills, and the other dedicated to research and comprehensive education. Our other vocational voices in that episode were Jenny Dodd, CEO, TAFE Directors Australia, and Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER. The distinction between VET and higher education uh, is really a false distinction. Is a false distinction, um, and it's based on on history. Uh, and we've set up the, 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 these two sectors as if one's on Mars and the other's on Venus, and and they, there's very little intersection. My starting point is that higher education is essentially vocational in, in nature. I mean, you, you think about how it started. It was to train theologians, priests for the, for the church, uh, about training nurses, doctors, accountants, engineers, architects. I mean, you can't get more vocational than, than that. So it, it, it's really quite false to think of higher education as being in some sense higher uh, we're, and, and not vocational. Um, whereas if we look at the vocational sector uh, in Australia, uh, certainly as it's been set up in history, it itself is not that vocational. If, if you look at the match between what people actually study and the jobs that they, they get, uh, there's a pretty poor match. And so a lot of what the vet sector is teaching is actually generic skills which can be transferred to a wider range of jobs. Uh, and of course, th th they're fighting words at the moment because of the way Australia has used training packages in, in VET. The, the general education function of, of VET has been downplayed for many years. And there are many who argue that that actually is one area that could be strengthened. Tom, uh, if current trends continue here in Australia, you're predicting that VET will be limited to providing lower level training for short-term industry needs, while university education will dominate the training for professional occupations. Um, how do you think we can address 
this decline and ensure a balance between practice-based education and research-oriented universities? Well, that's really the, the crux of, of this whole area. Uh, the universities have been very successful in basically colonising the professions uh, and, and management more and more, and, and, and uh, lower-level ocup- occupations uh, as well. Uh, it's just become a matter of fact that the entry requirement for many jobs is now a degree, whereas it used to be a diploma. So my point is that if the vet sector doesn't actually get into offering these types of qualifications, it basically has abandoned the top half of of the labour market and it will only train people for medium and and lower level jobs. And I think this is a a great pity because I think the, the whole paradigm of practical learning and applied learning is a very good one. Uh, and I think one of the, the problems with the distinction between higher, higher education and vet is the fact that universities represent higher education and they're totally dominated by the research agenda. That's where all the kudos is. So it doesn't matter what universities say about how much effort they put into their, into their teaching. It's quite clear that the main focus is on research output, research rankings, getting more international students, getting more money, getting more research, uh, and practical learning, applied learning uh, for the labour market is a long way from that. Well, I think the qualifications are the key, uh, the key element. I would see a professional university offering uh, qualifications from certificates, maybe lower level certificates, but certainly certificates three and four, up to diplomas, uh, degrees, and possibly uh, coursework masters. But, and this would be in, in areas that are clearly linked with the labour market. So you could think of it as, um, as being vertically integrated in some sense. So you, if you're interested in, in the health workforce, uh, you would be training people from personal carers through to enrolled nurses, registered nurses uh, uh, and, and other uh, health, health professionals. So rather than uh, an institution being comprehensive, it, may, it would probably focus on certain fields and offer the training that you need to work in those fields at various levels. So a lot of what Tom's suggesting we would absolutely endorse with the exception of the utilisation of professional university, but, but we can agree to disagree on some things. It's the title that concerns me. But what the essence of the model has enormous merit and has enormous merit when we look at what's been delivered through the interim report from the university's accord panel, which was delivered last Wednesday uh, in, in, in July, that too, the focus in that interim report is very strongly on teaching and learning. It's very strongly on improving opportunities for equity groups to be successful in the sorts of fields of study that Tom is talking about. And that's going to have to happen through a more integrated approach to how uh, people can grab bits of different types of learning in very practical ways through knowledge base, through uh, practical skill development to create new courses and new programs. I do think we are at a moment in time where that distinction between vet and higher education is problematic. But within this argument, we also have to understand the difference between a TAFE 
and I represent the TAFE sector in this conversation, and there are 29 of them with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of students. They are education organisations who have the ability to develop outside of the national training system, which to some extent has created some of this distinction between vet and higher education. And so the close to 4,000 other RTOs may not be well equipped to be in this more complex educational model, which is going to facilitate people's ability to learn both at Certificate 3 or a degree to create a new qualification, new outcome that will be meaningful in the world in which we're in today. It's certainly one of TDA's recommendations to the Accord panel that we have to be able to free up TAFEs in particular to work closely with universities to develop these new programs that are going to be so needed in the future. The concept Tom's floating is great. We're right on board with that concept. What we're not on board with is a title called professional university, and it's not about the term professional, it's about the term university. The term university is not necessarily encompassing of all our learners into the future. We cannot lose sight of the fact that TAFE as a brand, as a recognised brand, as a trusted brand, has a lot of courage going forward into the future. And therefore, labelling everything professional universities has a problem with it. But the concept, the concept Tom's talking about has enormous merit. So I don't want to get caught up into a title because that, that, that's fairly artificial at this point in time. It's the concept of distinguishing between a university that's driven predominantly for research rankings, as Tom said, from an educational, tertiary educational organisation that is able to mix appropriate applied learning environments to deliver the outcomes we need. And although Tom kept away from the doctors, which you asked him, let's talk about the health profession because I think here is a really good example. When you look at the sorts of integrated learning that someone might gain from a certificate three to work initially in aged care, they may... Uh, also then decide to do a diploma of enrolled nursing and a diploma of enrolled nursing gives them a lot of opening into the health system in a broader capacity but it, at the moment because it's a training package qualification it doesn't necessarily have that broader knowledge base that we would need for people who do registered nursing so what Tom's really talking about here is create, uh, I believe, is creating appropriate courses and appropriate programs to meet those applied learning, learning needs of those industries that can mesh together some bits of Cert 3, some bits of Cert 4, some bits of, of diploma, which is Cert 5, and certainly at the, at the uh, degree level, which is uh, Level 7. We can mesh those together. Now, that's going to take enormous system change to enable that to happen because at the moment... Our systems, our funding, our policy, there are so many other regulatory systems that don't enable that to be easy. But I do think now is the moment in time where we have to see the creation of some of that change process take place. Um, I'm probably in, in heated agreement with, with much of that, but, but the, the term professional university uh, is, is an interesting one and, and it, gets, it gets back to status. And when we were playing around with, with, with names for this, um, there, there, there was a view that unless the word university 
is in the is in the title, these will be seen as second rate institutions. I mean, when we when we look at history um, and uh, more widely over in Europe and so on, there are bodies called polytechnics, which are really what we're really what we're talking about. So the names are sort of important because status is important. And I noticed that in the Accord discussion paper, there was yet another reference to parity of esteem. But a parity of esteem uh, is, is really rubbish and unless you're actually offering qualifications to get people into the good jobs uh, because it's really about status of occupations rather than status of a TAFE versus status uh, of a university. So I will make a couple of comments on that because I think um, if, if we're going around, <laughs> if we are going to talk about the labelling, we need to dig deep into some of the experience of some of the dual sectors because indeed some, at least one of them now, is making a very explicit claim for a TAFE division within that, within that uh, branding exercise because they've realised there is actually excluding a, a group of students from actually seeing that that's where they want to be. They may not at that point in time think that that's where they actually want to be in a, in a university and so they're actually reclaiming the brand of TAFE within that dual sector environment. However, I, I, I don't really want, I, I personally don't really want to get locked down into, into names because I don't think that is what is the future. I, I do, though, think that there is some real opportunities around a, a much more uh, innovative ability to bring the two uh, course structures together in different ways. And I also think that we do have what Tom said. It's often status is around occupation, not so much around the labelling of, of uh, debt or higher ed. It is certainly around occupation. And if we think about that in particular in terms of very feminised occupations, it's a status that goes with occupation that can become the issue. So if there is evidence to demonstrate university would have courage, maybe go that way. But let's, let's not lock in an outcome of a name before we actually lock in the construct of the model. And it's the model that we're supportive of. Well, just to pick up on that last point of Jenny's, one of the benefits or potential benefits of the model, this integrated model that Tom referred to initially, was that VET has a far greater success at giving eligibility and access to disadvantaged students, for example, First Nations people, but, but plenty of other uh, demographics involved mm -hmm. there as well. And having an integrated model allows people to scaffold through their training from lower level certificates all the way through, if they have the ambition, through to degrees, rather than have the universities try and attract them straight into a degree. So if we're talking about equity, and that's a big part of government policy, it's a big part of the university's accord, then this alternative integrated model has got to offer a whole range of benefits that would be very difficult to do if you want direct entry into university. There's a, a lot of research in the 
in the STEM, which is the science and maths, which the trades fit into. There's a lot of research that says girls face a rather chilly and hostile environment because it's a male-dominated, they're usually male teachers, the trades teachers. They're mainly predominantly males, if you think only 2% of the trades are women. There's very few girls in apprenticeships, so they're the, they're the isolated ones. And I've heard some rather grim stories of the teachers making fun of them, which of course encourages the boys to make fun of them. So part of, I think, the foundational thing is training for teachers and students in TAFE. Hello, I'm Steve Davis and welcome to this special episode of Vocational Voices. That was Christina Scott-Young, Associate Professor, RMIT University, from our special No Frills episode in 2023. The 32nd annual No Frills conference was held in Melbourne in July, and as usual, the event drew together speakers, practitioners and other stakeholders over three days of intense and inspirational conversation. The theme was Skilling Australia's Current and Future Workforce, And we're about to listen to a sampling of insights from seven of the event's speakers. You can download more information and papers from the NCVER website. Just go to ncver.edu.au and search for No Frills 2023. Now, the other speakers you're about to hear from are Hinamore Priest from the Wellington Institute of Technology, Melanie Kyle, RMIT University, Professor Erica Smith, Federation University, Olivia Comandina, TAFE Queensland, and Dr. David Longley, Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, along with Michael Basham from TAFE SA. We kicked off by asking Hinamore Priest to elaborate on the specific challenges that Maori vet students, particularly young Maori men, face when it comes to accessing and succeeding in tertiary education in New Zealand. Well, historically, it hasn't been easy for our um, young men to enter into tertiary, in particular if they haven't done so well in high school they often look at our institutions as a foreign place, something that's not welcoming for them or is not um, very much in line with the whānau or family environment that they're used to. So our role is to ensure that we do make it culturally appropriate for them Mm. and that we do have services that encourage them and their families, their whānau, to come into and through our doors. Um, I have a team of staff under the Tamaiti Whāngai model, and the Tamaiti Whāngai model of support is an iwi-led, a tribal-led model um, that we have have worked with the iwi to make it more appropriate for our institution. So in line with that, it means that they have staff members, I have staff members who will go and talk to the families, talk to the young people pre-enrolment to ensure that they are coming into the right course for the right reasons and that they are comfortable knowing that they've met someone before enrolment that they can identify with and feel comfortable with. So the Tamaiti Whangai model of support is a holistic approach where we take the, the Tamaiti, the child or the young person, 
and the family and the support mechanisms, which could be the extended family, which could be the Marayan community, with us on their journey. Um, we work with our iwi, our tribal partners, mm. to ensure that where we can't pri- provide the support, they can. And that could be financial support, that could be housing support, that could be supporting the wider family. Um, during COVID, a lot of our young people had to go to work to support their families because mum or dad had lost their job because of, of whatever happened. Mm-hmm. Um so we've, we've worked with the families to try and retain our young people in education, but work with the families to ensure that they are supported and able to then support their young person through this journey. So Tamaiti Whangai is a holistic approach. It could mean that, you know, we have to go out of our way to take food or kai to their family home. We provide them with their tools that they need to to get through their course. Um, a number of our, our Tamaiti Whangai students are a cohort approach. So we have something that the, the government has put in place, Māori Pacifica Trade Training, and that approach is to try and improve the numbers of young Māori Pacifica going into a trade with a qualification and coming out the other end. <clears throat> so to ensure that we get our the pass rates up and the retention up, we put we put them into cohorts, some of them, mm. with a Māori tutor. So straight away, the face is the same. You look like me, I look like you, I'm happy to be here and I'm attending, I'm achieving. Mm. If by any chance they fall over during their time with us, then one of my staff, the Tamaiti Whangai staff, will go and visit them at home, have a kōrero, have a chat to them about what is the problem, and try and re-engage them. Nine times out of ten, that re-engagement happens quite quickly. Um, and they're back on course. The tutors will work with them to pick, pick up where they've left off and bring them up to speed. So it's a really, it is really a different approach. It is about the person. And it is about taking that person and putting them through. So at the end of the day, if we can get them qualified, their social and economic base for their family is going to improve tenfold. The opportunities are for increased digital skills for staff and for students. That's both a challenge and an opportunity, to be honest. Um, There's been a lot of talk about digital literacy for students But what I've uh, observed through my research for the fellowship and also the presentations that I've done at conferences this year, it appears that staff are lacking confidence and access to suitable digital technology. They have the will and uh, there's a lot of motivation to implement a lot of these um, tools and blended learning strategies, but there is um, seemingly a lack of access to those. Um, And I would probably argue time and support for the staff to learn those. So that's that's both a challenge and an opportunity. There's a lot of opportunity for learning. Uh, If I can use an example in my fellowship research, I've recommended that 
institutions provide targeted staff training. And if this institution is not able to provide it, there are other uh, resources available outside an institution to gain targeted staff training in blended learning. And uh, Temasek Polytechnic in uh, Singapore provides an excellent example of that. They have developed uh, certified training or accredited training for their staff, uh, which is incredibly comprehensive, and it directly shows a positive student outcomes. Uh, also, I highly recommend, and this is an opportunity, to establish uh, blended learning mentors or champions in institutions, and that is not really a cost to the institution. It's about staff who are keen to put their hand up and be a go-to champion or peer-to-peer supporter. And when I was involved in that project last year, uh, we provided that uh, support and training to the teachers involved, um, and it was particularly successful. So it's just identifying people who are keen to learn, such as myself as a learning designer now, and working one-on-one or in small groups with other teachers. Um, Another opportunity is to just embed the blended learning principles and blended learning design into learning management systems and that all courses follow that and then start to uh, implement or um, embed the interactive elements such as those quizzes or discussion boards, those sorts of things. Um, And if possible, start to measure your student engagement and understanding with surveys embedded into that learning management system as well. So what we're really saying is there's a lot of opportunities because we, we can see that the research indicates blended learning and digital technology increases uh, participation, it increases engagement, but we have the challenges of digital literacy and access to technology, which is um, at the moment one of those barriers. I want to pick up your findings highlighted a lack of oversight yes. of, of the quality of vet teacher training, particularly yes. be, beyond the regulatory mechanisms. Yeah. Can you discuss some of the implications of the gap and how it might affect you know, overall quality in vet education? Yeah, so in Australia, we have regulatory frameworks. We have ASPA for the um, vet sector and we have TEXA for the higher ed sector. Um, ASPA is sort of um, sort of looks after the quality of the vet sector, but what it doesn't look at is the quality of delivery of qualifications. So ASQA, um, their job is to, and I don't envy them, their job is to enforce the, enforce the RTO standards and the RTO standards don't really look at the quality of delivery. So in an ASQA audit, nobody is going in and looking at how well a qualification is taught. Um, so a cert for and a diploma um, in the vets for vet teaching, the cert for TA in the diploma of vet, when they're audited, nobody is going into classrooms or watching on Zoom and seeing how well the qualifications are taught. So the content is laid down to some extent, but only in units of competency. The curriculum isn't inspected. The teaching delivery isn't inspected. Now, people often compare that with, for example, in the UK, where Ofsted, 
which um, is vet schools and also vet providers or FA colleges, as they're called there, um, actually watches teaching. Inspectors watch teaching. Doesn't happen in Australia. Now, in the university sector, same thing. Um, in fact, there's even less governance in a way. Um, curriculum is approved, um, but not detailed lesson plans. Uh, teaching isn't inspected by TEXA. Academic boards um, oversee the quality of curriculum to some extent, but it's pretty similar in a way to the development of training packages. It's what's written down that's inspected. The quality of teaching isn't inspected. Now, in the case of, um, I'm going to go off a bit of a tangent, but I think it'll make sense. In the case of um, vet teacher education, nobody inspects for university courses what we put into our programmes either. And in fact, the group of vet teacher educators at, um, from universities has from time to time said, please will somebody look at our curriculum and um, this happens in individual universities when programmes are reviewed, but for the initial deciding what goes into a curriculum, there isn't any input from the industry. Now, that compares very unfavourably with many other professions that are um, trained through university courses, so engineering, social work, nursing and so on, where professional bodies get really um, interested and involved in the nitty-gritty of what goes into qualifications and they're not accredited um, until the professional bodies are happy or the employer bodies and or the employer bodies. That doesn't happen um, in university vet teacher education. It only happens in um, vet sector, sorry, this gets a bit meta, but vet sector vet teacher education through the development and review of the training package doesn't happen beyond then. Um, the, the vet industry doesn't get involved in how well the qualifications for vet teaching are delivered and what is actually in the day-to-day -day curriculum of those, of those qualifications. So this is the gap that I identified. When I started comparing um, this profession, the vet teaching profession, with training for other professions, I thought there's a big gap here. Um, it, it's just not inspected for quality, um, which is surprising because you would think the vet sector would be intensely interested in how well training for its teachers um, is delivered, but, but it, it hasn't set up mechanisms. Well, I think from the Australian point of view, I think it does point to a, a quality gap that could be fairly readily addressed more interest could be taken in the way in which the cert for diploma and university qualifications are delivered. There could be uh, some sort of um, national body set up, there used to be in Australia, that, that would look at matters like this. Uh, so I think it could be fairly readily addressed without uh, too much difficulty. I think issues such as teacher registration for the vet sector have been discussed at length but never implemented and I think probably that's going a bit too far so I, I think some sort of national body that, that looks at these matters would be good yeah. so in the school sector for example there's AITSL the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership I think I've got that acronym right 
um, which the government, the federal government set up to, to look at matters such as this. So why not do that for VET? Um, and in the early childhood centre sector, there's ASEQA, which does um, that among other issues. So clearly, clearly the Commonwealth Government has said the education of um, teachers for early childhood and for schools needs to be looked at more closely, but for some reason hasn't done that for VET. Now, internationally, um, actually, I'm not going to say much about that, Steve, because the more um, international, well, there isn't much time, but the more international work um, I do, the more I realise that it's very hard to compare VET systems. So there's sort of bits that people could pick up from the Australian experience, but but um, I can't claim to say I've got the solutions. How can educators strike the balance between using ChatGPT's capabilities and being mindful of not only its limitations, but potential biases? The first thing is educators need to educate themselves. So, uh, and that is that is also, you know, it sounds simple, but it's a big task because, as I said before, the record is so uh, significant that it's probably hard to ever feel, oh, I'm, I'm actually okay now to make some sort of decisions. So we also need to have a self-discipline to say, I actually know about, uh, you know, chat GPT, I know about Tommy, and I, I know about Canva, for example, which would be text and presentation and visual um, uh, artificial intelligence platforms. This is enough for me to to master and to actually keep going and keep working in a better way what I'm doing. So that, that's, that's one component of it. Another component is space and uh, uh, context where uh, teachers work, what is available, what is not, um, what are the teams that people work in. So it's really uh, uh, contextualized in a way because you may have teams that will actually take you with them on their journey, or you may be in an environment where it's not all that you know important or popular at that stage. And I would emphasize the most the leadership. Uh, this is the time, I mean, it's always been a time when leadership in education is important, but there are some sort of moments as well, which are more pivotal than the others. And I believe we are now in one of those with a, with a leadership that will actually uh, nurture, you know, artificial intelligence in all of those senses, being a tool, being your friend, uh, being whatever you want it to be, uh, will be uh, determined by the leadership uh, in, in, you know, in some extent. So. So all of those together and in a different shapes and form, you can see now a variety of different you know, situations we may be, um, will actually determine how is that going to how is that going to look like. I have heard about places that ban them uh, at some stage, you know, uh, because they are not really sure what to do and how to do with it. Obviously, the plagiarism and you know bias there are there are dangers there by by all by all means. But we need to understand them and we need to work around them rather than you know using them as a reason. To, to abolish the whole AI because it's there, it's going to be there, it's going to grow, it's not going to go away. Just finally, Olivia, looking ahead, what are your thoughts on the potential long-term impact of AI tools like ChatGPT on vocational education? And how do you see those tools shaping the future of teaching and learning in this domain? I, I think I'm very optimistic. I think we are going to go through a couple, we'll have to go through a couple of hurdles in embracing it. 
um, and that's probably going to take a while. But what, when, once we do that or during the journey of, you know, uh, developing the positive and, and you know, a, a nice relationship with the artificial intelligence, I think it's we are going to do things better. We are going to do things faster. We are going to be more efficient and we are going to spend time. We'll have more time for innovation and creativity and all the repetitiveness in our jobs and everything that actually takes time, but it's not necessarily all that rewarding on the other end, will actually be done by AI. And uh, for example, lesson plans or developing the presentations for your classes or all those things that were traditionally very time consuming in a time poor industry, uh, I can't see, um, I can't see that, you know, going wrong. I really can't. I think that we are having time of uh, a lot of enjoyment in, in education sector with, uh, with the appropriate use of AI. As you were talking, the coin finally dropped for me of just the significance of so much aspect of society that the vet sector is engaged in and its direct link to, to the climate response, etc. cetera. Uh, so this is such a fascinating paper. Uh, but looking forward, though, what are the main hurdles uh, and even the opportunities in, in implementing the proposed changes and ensuring that vocational education truly does become a pivotal force in our response to climate and environmental challenge? I'll speak to the opportunity first because that's the one I prefer speaking to because I think this is a moment for optimism. As we can see, there is glowing momentum in climate and environmental action in Australia and across the globe. I think none of us thought we would be moving with the speed and enthusiasm we are now if we were to be asked this question, you know, four or five years ago. I think there's been a massive shift in action at government level, industry level, communities. Everyone's really now on the front foot. I think also speaking to the vet space, this um, reform window we have within vocational education really lends us an opportunity for this alignment. As I said a bit earlier, we are speaking about how can we improve how the VET system enables those who pass through it long-term, secure, um, mobile employment with a degree of agency. So not mobility enforced by um, the market or enforced by trends that the individual has no power over, but mobility enforced by someone's aspirations and someone's goals. Then I think from, again, bringing in our perspective as a social justice organisation who works a lot, particularly with young people and the next generation, there's a real ambition for this to be um, a key part of who they are and how they work. More than any other previous generation the young people of today see the green credentials of an industry, of an employer, and of their workplace as a key factor in what determines for them meaningful employment. So I think they are going to be strong drivers of the change that's going to happen at the system level as the system has to react to this ambition of the generation to come. In terms of hurdles, it's an interesting question. I think if you would ask me this 12 months ago, I would have said that assumptions that sort of business as usual workforce development practices are sufficient would be the major hurdle. But I think the tide has turned on this one. Um, the recent conference, the recent NCVR conference showed that there's a strong ambition to make vocational education stronger, to improve, to develop new systems, new practices for this ambition of justness, of outcomes and access. 
that means I think the two, for me, the two largest remaining challenges are this need for immediate action. You know, we have acted globally too late on this. We know that there is some degree of change which is now inevitable. So there is a rush to catch up to where we should be. Obviously, we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good, but we also don't want to entrench and solidify ineffective practices for the sake of expediency. So I think it's really the challenge is balancing that need to act quickly with the need for that long-term planning to be thoughtful, to take the time to reflect on what could be done better. I think the second one, and this again, I think I'm optimistic about there are discussion is happening is what is the role of vocational education? Is vocational education just a tool for workforce development? Is it just there to produce the workers to serve the industries which address climate? Or is it to develop a new generation of those with the skills to take on the work themselves, to enable every person who enters the workforce to know how they how their work either contributes to mitigation or adaptation? Is it to build a sort of climate literate um, workforce where um, much as we're seeing in primary, secondary and tertiary education, where this sort of sustainability mindset and thinking is built into the very fabric of how we train people, much as you know, occupational health and safety is. So I think those are the two main hurdles, that the need for speed, but also what is the role of vocational education in workforce development? And I think, you know, speaking personally, this is a time for bold ambition in that respect. Could you share so many uh, specific strategies that vocational education institutions could implement that could create a more welcoming and, and supportive environment for female apprentices? Yes, this is a really important one. There's a, a lot of research in the in the STEM, which is the science and maths, which the trades fit into. There's a lot of research that says girls face a rather chilly and hostile environment because it's a male-dominated, they're usually male teachers, the trades teachers. They're mainly predominantly males, if you think only 2% of the trades are women. And very, there's very few girls in apprenticeships, so they're the, they're the isolated ones. And I've heard some rather grim stories of the teachers making fun of them, which, of course, encourages the boys to make fun of them. So part of, I think, the foundational thing is training for teachers and students in TAFE. So some sort of, um, we all need it everywhere. As a woman, I can say <laughs> We still need this kind of training, but training about respect and about diversity and inclusion and about the impact, the negative impact of exclusion. So fostering that inclusivity and respect in the classroom, improving the classroom culture, and that starts at the top with the teachers because what the boys see will be modelled. Also, I'm a teacher myself, but at university, and there is often bad behaviour in class. So training the teachers on how to deal with this, because I'm a psychologist, but even I sometimes get challenged with how do I respond to this behaviour? Um, so I think that education and support, I think zero tolerance of bad behaviour, and that's not always easy, but I think it has to be called out. And I found when I have tried to respectfully call out 
misbehaviour, um, the females in the class afterwards have come up and thanked me because clearly it's a rare occurrence that the males get called out for being discriminatory and sometimes downright rude um, and offensive to women. The other thing I think TAFE needs to do is to put some mentoring or peer support other women or tradeswomen to mentor the girls going through apprenticeships so they have some support. Now, that might only be connecting them up to um, Build Like a Girl or Tradey Ladies, the organisations that already exist. But one of the things I think that, well, from our experience, we found 55% of our apprentices had had bad exclusionary or sometimes even worse experiences at work. So my feeling is the TAFE system and maybe the government needs to monitor the workplaces that are taking on apprentices. And that may just be with debriefing with the girls and finding out if things are going badly or if there's inappropriate behaviour, then actually not turning a blind eye to it, but trying to address that through education of the employer. Because a lot of this is about education and trying to change attitudes, but basically it boils down to respect for human beings, whether they're male or female, non-binary, blue, pink, yellow, green, rainbow. It's basically about respecting the other person as a human being and hopefully that's not too hard to get across and sometimes maybe we've never been taught that. The lessons learned through the development of the, the Veterans Program, I'm sensing they're valuable. They're going to help with us, us with informing future initiatives. Uh, Michael, could you perhaps share some of the, the key lessons and insights that have emerged along the way with this program? Engage early and consult widely are the two that I commonly <laughs> refer to. Right. But we, we certainly thought in the beginning we had a plan that was going to work. Uh, but it wasn't until we started attending some transition events um, and, and speaking to, you know, 100 plus members and their families that we really understood their requirements on a deeper level. Um, and I guess when you're also working with um, you know, such a large department like Department of Defence, you realise that some of your internal processes or um, you know, things that you have in place uh, may have to be adapted to suit um, such a large um, department who already have um, very well embedded processes, um, rules, regulations, things that have to be done. And particularly with a member that is transitioning, it's not a, um, it's not a quick process, it's, it's very involved. And we have to find, or I did have to find the best way that we can seamlessly integrate with that process to not only support the member, but ensure that we, as TAFE say, um, you know, also got what we needed as part of our um, processes and due diligence, et cetera. And some of the research shows that young people are looking for meaning and purpose uh, in their work, but also to be able to have a positive societal impact beyond the profit motive in the workplace. And increasingly young people want to be associated with employers and colleagues who are ethical and a force for good. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research. That was NCVR's Joy DeLeo from episode four in 2023, uh, kicking off 
discussion of the concept of meaningful work. It's something that's been regularly voiced by participants in vet research for many years. What does meaningful mean and what are the pathways for achieving that end? We tackled that topic in the discussion with Joy and our other vocational voice in the episode, Michael Healy from Education Services Australia. It's really interesting when we, I think, when we talk about skills gaps and things, because I think sometimes in the media and, and you know, politicians discussing that, sometimes I feel like uh, these skills are autonomous beings in themselves. They say we need skills, we need um, to fill these skills gap. And we need to remember that it's people that fill these gaps. Um, people with certain skills, certainly, but uh, it, it's people that will become aged care workers and people that will go and work in, um, you know, cybersecurity and so forth. And so we need to recognise some of the other factors that people use to make uh, career and education decisions, I think, because certainly it's very useful to use labour market information to identify opportunities so that you can have some degree of confidence that, if I invest my time and effort and money into this training program, that there will be an outcome uh, in terms of employment. But, you know, if we take the example of aged care, um, I could I could quite confidently go and do a, a certificate of aged care, I think, and I'm sure that I could do it well academically and I could learn the skills to keep people safe and, and you know, look after them in a, in a aged care environment, but I'm not sure that I'm the person suited to do that work. Um, I can't quite put my finger on why mm. I might like that, but, it, you know, I'm not necessarily someone who is highly motivated to care for someone in that very intimate physical way. It's just not who I am. Um, so we need people to combine their their values and their character strengths, such as empathy, patience, you know, that's the kind of person that we want to be looking after our elderly. It's the kind of person I'd like to look after me when I need it. Yes. Um, and if we take the digital skills, um, digital uh, ICT work is essentially problem solving constantly um, because we know that the problems, once you solve it, technology's moved on and it's a whole new problem. You need to learn how to do it all over again. So we need people with curiosity. So I think one way that we can look at it is how do we match the people that have those innate sort of qualities that suit particular kinds of work and then equip them, equip them with the particular skills and competencies that we need to do the work? Because skills will often change, but those innate qualities tend to be fairly stable over time. Um, so in my mind, it's a little bit of finding the right person for the right role with and then equipping them with the right skills in order to perform that role. I'll introduce some of my personal views as well, as well as trying to weave in some of the research. Meaning for me is to find a match between the values that are expressed in the nature of the work in the workplace. It might be the employer's values for the organisation and my own values. And just from my own personal experience in the past, if I've worked with an organisation where my values conflict with those of the organisation, it creates internal conflict within me. And some of the research shows that uh, uh, young people are looking for meaning and purpose uh, in their work, but also to be able to have a positive 
societal impact beyond the pro- pro- profit motive in the workplace. And apparently this has become uh, a number one driver for young people in making uh, career choices. And increasingly young people want to be associated with employers and colleagues who are ethical and a force for good. I think it's important to raise employer awareness around what staff are looking for, young people and existing for, uh, workers, what they're looking for in a job. And, and they're looking for flexibility and choice, um, a work-life balance, in addition to meaning and, and purpose. But they're also interested in the culture of the organisation, an inclusive culture um, and they like to be treated with respect. And uh, we had a recent um, uh, research report by um, Josie Misko, which showed that a contributing factor to some apprentices ab- abandoning their apprenticeship uh, was actually an unsatisfactory relationship or conflict with their employer. So positive working relationships and a positive working environment are really important. So, so they would be some of the things. I absolutely agree with the role of relationships. Uh, They can certainly, you know, turn people away from uh, occupations and professions. A bad experience uh, could put people away. So we need to make sure that we're putting people in front of particularly young people who really um, demonstrate all the best things about particular careers and can give uh, people insights into what those roles look like. I think the labour market information and exploring the world of work is really crucial. So particularly for these emerging occupations such as the digital skills that Joy referred to, it's really hard to know what they are um, if you're an outsider. It's hard to know what the day-to-day life of someone in those roles looks like. So uh, information and experiences where people can learn before they, you know, invest, uh, you know, a year, two years, three years into training that they can uh, establish for themselves whether they fit well with that. And then also, I think we need to recognise that there are some barriers to people pursuing these goals. Nursing is a good example. To become a nurse, you need to do your placements. And there's uh, been a bit of discussion recently about unpaid placements and how they can cause significant stresses uh, to students. It can make it impossible for them to complete their, their education. It can be incredibly stressful for them and their families. So um, certainly we need nurses to undertake placements, but we need to think carefully about how we um, enable people, regardless of what their training is, to do what's required of them um, and make sure that we're not putting up barriers because we want the, the best possible people to go into these occupations. I think there's definitely a role um, for leaders um, in government and in agencies, but also for uh, career counsellors in schools and uh, career guidance staff in registered training organisations, training providers, um, because they can help students become aware of, of, of how and where to obtain uh, uh, meaningful employment and also to access funding subsidies, youth allowances, student loans and so on. Um, to to be able to undertake training. But there's also an additional issue of managing financial demands. I mean, people are really doing it tough at the moment financially. People have to pay the rent and contribute to the family budget and so on. Um, But finding a way to balance part-time work with part-time studies, training providers can actually help um, with advice around 
part-time study or uh, study online. Um, and in some cases, there might be a place for casual and part-time work while students are navigating their way through studies towards their chosen um, occupation. Um, they can also help with course advice and finding um, good study uh, pathways to to employment. Um, mm -hmm. So there, there's some of the suggestions um, that I have. There's no doubt that the nature of work is changing rapidly and there's more change to come. Um, it's been happening for a while. We see it with automated calls and information, bank tellers, self-managed bookings and checkouts at airports and supermarkets and so on. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. However, it is thought that the new jobs, particularly the clean energy um, uh, technologies that you mentioned, um, that they are being uh, created as a result of this technology and they're likely to compensate for the loss of jobs brought about by those developments. And of course, it remains to be seen whether that is the case. And I think the transition period uh, will be bumpy. Uh, but young people need to be aware of what those new and emerging jobs might be, and they're likely to continually change, but also to know what the jobs on the way out are so that they don't invest in training for those um, jobs as well. The problem is whether the training will be there in time for those new jobs because things are moving faster than training for those jobs can keep up. Um, so career advisors and training organisations really need to keep themselves up to, up to date with new and emerging occupations and those that are likely to become redundant so that they can give accurate, up-to-date information to students on the implications of their career choices. So, for example, you wouldn't want to become a postal worker or a travel agent or a telemarketer a cashier or a truck driver, all of those occupations are on the way out. And, of course, some will remain like teaching and health workers and tradespeople. They might change and become AI-assisted, but there are new occupations coming online according to the World Economic Forum. So we'll need AI experts, cybersecurity, virtual reality, managing tide water, environmental sustainability and all the clean energy technologies, even new occupations such as becoming a smart home designer, uh, creating work environments that foster wellbeing and collaboration. So uh, it's exciting but also a bit tumultuous. For school students or, or new entrants to the workforce, I would say make hay while the sun shines. Uh, do your research, get some really good advice from various informed sources, not just from your friends who might be in the same boat as you, mm -hmm. but find a match between what you're good at, what you love doing, and an occupation in demand that isn't on the way out, and that's gold. Uh, the situation currently with, with uh, uh, it being a, a, a job market for young people and uh, lots of jobs available, that situation might not last forever. So make the most of it now and establish yourself in your chosen career as soon as you can. Quite seriously, I, I probably learned as much from the guys as you know, as I try to you know, deliver to them. You talk about vulnerability. I can recall back right to the start of this. We kind of all exposed ourselves, said, okay, none of us know everything. 
let's talk about scenarios. And we talked a lot and confidentially about scenarios that are happening in the guys' workplaces, all those kind of things. And I think the trust and respect grew over time and to where we are now. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre. That was Jeff Lynch from our fifth episode of 2023, in which we discussed the vital role of partnerships in the vet sector. These partnerships help connect training with the skills that industries need. Simultaneously, they build the capacity and resilience of both providers and employers. In the discussion, our focus centred on four key elements that are considered fundamental to successful partnerships. And we did that through a case study featuring the Management Edge and Murrumbidgee Local Health District. It revealed the power of collaboration that's possible when delivering leadership training to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workers. This discussion drew from the research report Building Effective RTO Employer Partnerships and the accompanying Good Practice Guide, both of which were published on the 20th of September 2023. In the bumper episode, our speakers were Michelle Tuchelli, Research and Data Analytics Branch, NCVER, Charmaine Marshall, Murrumbidgee Local Health District, New South Wales Government, Jeff Lynch, Trainer and Assessor, Tina Bagella, a consultant with Oji Consulting, and Angela Dam, who is representing the voice of the learner in the process. And just before we play you out with the final snippets, please note the transcripts and recordings of this podcast and all the other five podcast episodes from 2023 that we've drawn from today can be found on the NCVER portal at ncver.edu.au. Just look under the News and Events podcast tab. We look forward to bringing you more topics and more informed discussion in 2024. Until then, thanks for listening. Through the research that um, we did, and and Tina was the core um, part of um, undertaking all of that research, um, there were, as you say, four elements we identified. And the first one um, we refer to as quality training and service delivery. And we see this as the foundation of a partnership. If you don't have that, it's, it's going to be really hard to build any partnership. And when we talk about quality here, we're referring to highly skilled trainers and assessors who are proficient in delivering training within the workplace. They have exceptional interpersonal skills, extensive industry knowledge, and they have the ability to understand and preempt the employer's needs. Being customer focused is our second element. And so having established quality allows RTO to be more customer focused, to be more agile and flexible in their response to employers' needs. For example, looking for ways to create efficiencies in how training is delivered so as to minimise that disruption to normal workplace operations. Um, Offering tailor-made and customised training are other examples of being customer focused. The third of our four elements is working together. So the customer-focused approach I just mentioned is enhanced by working together, having the strong communication uh, and collaborative relationships and a willingness to be learner-centric in the approach to training and assessment. And our fourth element is relationships. Now, this element is, you know, closely aligned with working together, but it's focused 
is on the longer term. It's about building the trust in each other, fostering strong and mutually beneficial connections, ongoing communication and achieving shared goals. And this aspect is really critical for sustaining partnerships. And I'd, I'd just like to point out that while I've described these four elements separately, and great examples of each of these elements are highlighted across the case studies uh, which we use to form the Good Practice Guide, it's important to understand that in the real-world context, um, there's a good degree of overlap mm -hmm. between them, and they do often build upon each other. So, for example, um, through being customer-focused and delivering training on-site as a way to make that training explicitly relevant uh, while, almost, while also minimising that disruption to the workplace – that also provides trainers and assessors the op opportunity to really actively engage and integrate themselves into the employer's work environment. And this can then foster meaningful interactions um, with the employees themselves as well as the employers. That cultivates those relationships. It facilitates that exchange of information and encourages ongoing collaboration, you know, that working together. Mm. And from this, a stronger and more longer-term sustained partnership may result. I'll probably go threefold. So number one, the co-design approach um, and then working with us, not for us, from the RTO perspective. But um, the leadership skills application to really operationalise it is the, the key success factor for us. And, you know, that, that's witnessed by, and you'll hear from Ange later on, how the leadership languages has changed and we're having our, we call it reflection yarns at the start of the um, sessions. You can actually hear the language being applied. You can hear them using their coaching techniques. Everything that we've grown from leadership capability over the duration of the workshops and the program, you see it and hear it unfolding in the participants now, which is, I call it, a very proud mama moment. My expectations have exceeded what my um, what the outcome was going to be. I had no idea about the potential growth that I was going to have professionally. So I'm a registered nurse and I, in our capabilities, they asked us to develop leadership um, along the way. In the last 18 months, professionally, um, I've received recognition at a state level for um, the patient-centred and value-based care that I have, um, have achieved purely based on learning, um, the learnings from the modules that I've shut down with um, Charmaine and Jeff um, uh, over the last 18 months, yeah. So we, we, we catch up once a month, um, have a bit of a yarn. I never realised um, until now that sitting back is Charmaine taking all these notes and actually realising what our capabilities are and individually able to articulate skills and capabilities that we do have. So I suppose that's where it's compar comparatively different. So the expectation is we work through our modules together but individually, they're able to pull apart our conversations and document um, and reflect back on that to um, meet the needs of the the like the ticker boxes or um, the assessment criterias. But then we still come together and then do our workbooks so that we've looked through um, all of the required learnings, but also make sure that that's linked to work. And it's actually realistic. It's skills that are relevant to 
the experiences that we are facing on the floor. Um, the other thing that's really good is that it's time appropriate. Um, it's supported by the district so that we're able to do it in our in our work time. Um, and I don't feel that I've spent a lot of time individually hands-on on the books, maybe an hour or two a week or so that I need to go over and read over some of the stuff to make sure that I'm, I'm keeping up with the learnings that I need to learn about for myself. Um, but I find that I'm drawing back off the, the information that from the modules that um, Jeff has given to us to learn about on the journey. It's and you know just sitting around having a yarn initially um, with COVID coming through that was a really big roadblock to I suppose for Aboriginal people we like to know each other we like to have that bond we like to know where um, we sit with each other like um, you have the opportunity to say oh where's your mob from and then there's able to bring those links together and we then establish our kinship and our connection through that way and. Um, I think that was kind of missed at the start and I think that may be um, something that in future now that COVID's moved away, thankfully, um, that's probably a really big opportunity. So when, you know, we, when you initially start the program, it would be nice to see us coming together and having that um, team building, I was suppose you would call it, so that we can come together because we're all across the district. The districts is thousands of k's apart from each other, so it's hard to try and build those relationships um, in our individual space. I'm a nurse. There's a, um, mental health workers. There's allied health workers. So it's a it's a rather large pool of um, workforce that are coming together. So we understand each other where we all sit because we all work interprofessionally. Um, yeah, but I think I, I, I really can't tell you it far exceeds any learning environment that I've been in, to be honest. The case studies are across all different industries. So we've, as well as this healthcare one, we've got a meatworks, we've got a food manufacturer, we've got a bicycle shop, um, we've got a construction company and we've got a disability care provider. And, and in all those case studies, they're, they're so very different. But highlighting how how important it is to have those good quality trainers and assessors in place and how we have good quality trainers and assessors available and working out there um, and and not only their like industry skills and their understanding of the industry and their understanding of the training content but I think what really stood out amongst those uh, trainers and assessors was that were they they're ex exceptional communicators um, and so, you know, what you're talking about today with with Jeff and his his um his willingness to be vulnerable, that's about deep listening and really good communication. Um so yeah, so having that deep communication uh, with the, the employer and the learners, I think is is a highlight that that there are those skills out there and how important they are in those partnerships. So the partnerships, regardless of whether we had large employers, small employers, medium, and same with RTOs, and it's not like a one size fits all. So in this case, we have a very small RTO with a large employer, but we also had small with small and large with large. Um, so there's not like one size fits all and it's more about being able to build that relationship and they build them in different ways. So, for example, in the Meatworks case study, it's a very large provider and large providers can be very complex organisations and they have a one, a one point of contact there, which is a staff member uh, who doesn't deliver any of the training and assessment themselves, but they are responsible for the managing of the relationship with that employer and they also help 
shield the employer from the complexity of that RTO and they navigate the RTO on behalf of that employer with a small-to-small relationship, like in the bicycle shop one, you have the owner of the RTO doing that task, but also doing training and assessment as well. So we have different models. And it's not that one point of contact is the key thing because we have another one where there are three points of contact, but that focus on the employer and having people at the RTO that are responsible for managing the relationship and really um, customising the the service to meet the employer's needs. I think we might come back to the probably all the three C's that have been mentioned already is connection, collaboration and communication. And the collaboration and working together is the most important. And finding um, the RTOs out there for us, again, would um, my advice for employers looking is use training services because one, that they can actually go down a funding stream for you, but two, they can go, have you tried this, 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 and this? So they were key instrumental for us to find in the right RTO in the first instance. And then communication uh, with listening Mm -hmm. and also really listening to the employer of how are you actually going to operationalize this training with the application on the job afterwards? How does it fit into your strategic goals? How does it fit into where the organization go? And how does it fit into the frameworks in your capabilities of how you do things around here, basically. So connection, collaboration, communication with my three Cs. I think the successful RTO employer partnerships, um, the, a, a key theme running through them was that the RTO focused on building the relationship rather than just a basic business transaction. Sure, it is a business transaction um, with the RTO selling a service to the employer and the employer purchasing that service but it is so much more than that. And with with that partnership come so many more benefits and you can hear it in the way that Charmaine and Ange and Jeff are engaging in this conversation. There are tangibles and intangible benefits that are long, long lasting and RTOs that can focus on that, that the long-term building of the relationship, focusing on meeting the employer's need that deep listening, not only once, but a continuous process of deep listening and adapting and being flexible, um, which is about the relationship, I think are going to have success. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments, with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Employment and Workplace Relations. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.